So life has moments of incredible joy. I would imagine Friday morning for the, the Rogers family was one of those moments when uh, Finley entered uh, kind of the outside world and got to join the family properly and fully. That's a moment of absolute sheer exhaustion, but also joy uh, that's hard to rival. It's hard to match. But when we think about life, I suspect most of us would agree that typically we don't live in ultimate joy. Most of the time, life seems to be colored in various shades of disappointment, doesn't it? That we, somehow, life just seems to fall short of, uh, of what we hope for, what we dream of. Uh, even our own realistic expectations, we, we can still end up experiencing less than that. And life can be uh, incredibly disappointing, frustrating, uh, just inadequate compared to what it should be, what it could be. And then we come to a a service like this where the preacher says, Jesus has promised to give us life to the full. And for some of us hearing that, we probably think, oh, okay, life to the full with Jesus, that sounds lovely. We sort of think Jesus is going to make, make life to the full something less full than we think full should be. You know, we, we think that uh, Christianity and uh, a Jesus-given life is going to be stiff and starchy and a bit pickled and a bit sour. And, and then we look at a passage like the one we're going to look at today, and we discover that Jesus absolutely smashes those expectations. He just destroys that sense of who he is. And so I'm really excited for us to be continuing our Life Changer series because we're thinking about the fact not just that Jesus can change lives, but when he changes lives, he wants to change them completely. He wants to change them to the full. And so we're going to look at John chapter 2. If you want to grab one of the Bibles, there's quite a few lying around on the tables, and uh, we can pass them back if you, if you don't see one nearby. We're on page 887. John chapter 2, page 887. And in chapter 1, we've had a a week's break, so I'll just remind you, for those of you that were here, and kind of fill you in very briefly for those of you that weren't. In chapter 1, we had four weeks where we had a whole load of introductions to Jesus. Uh, John, the gospel writer, told us that Jesus is the light coming into the darkness, John the Baptist told us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he told us that Jesus is the one who is going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, we get testimonies about Jesus from um, Andrew and from Philip and from Nathaniel. And now we come to chapter 2, and it's Jesus' turn. It's Jesus' turn to present himself to us as we read this chapter together. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to see uh, in this chapter a presentation of Jesus, where Jesus is kind of not just saying it, but the way he's acting and the thing he's doing is demonstrating who he is. More than that, it's destroying that idea that life with Jesus is stiff and starchy, pickled and sour. Okay, Jesus really does mean life to the full. So let's read John chapter 2. In fact, let me pray before I read it to you. Father, we just want to say thank you for your word that we're holding in our hands. And we pray that as uh, we look at it right now, that we pray that by your spirit, you would open it up to us and open us up to your word, that we would see Christ and we would be drawn to him. We pray in his name. Amen. So the first 12 verses of chapter 2. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and give it to the master of the feast. So they uh, took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. What is life with Jesus like? We tend to think of Jesus as being sort of a a bolt-on to life. You know, you move to Chippenham, uh, you find your house, and then you find the schools that you need for the children, you find a gym, Sunday yet, right, find a church, and, and we kind of add Jesus on to life a little bit. But Jesus here is, is kind of uh, like he does all the way through the Gospels. He's challenging us to say, to say look, I'm not a bolt-on. I'm not an add-on. I want to give you full life, all of it, the whole deal. And the way he chooses to launch his ministry is to do that at this wedding. So he comes to this wedding, and the story here is fairly straightforward. You've probably uh, heard it before, but they're at this wedding, and they run out of wine, which is disaster. It's a shame on the family. It's a disgrace, really. I mean, it would be the talk of the town for years to come, to run out of wine at a wedding. And Mary is sensitive to that. I was just pondering that a little bit. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But I wonder if Mary is somehow extra sensitive to shame at weddings. Years before, three decades before, she'd got married. And there was no shame in it for her because the little boy that was there was not, well, you know how it goes at Christmas story, right? It wasn't a shame, but it looked like one. And so maybe Mary had that sort of sense of uh, awareness and sensitivity that, uh-oh, they've run out of wine. This is going to be bad. And so she comes to Jesus and tells him to do something about it. Now, I don't think that Mary is expecting Jesus to do a miracle. He hasn't done any before. He didn't grow up doing miracles for fun. Uh, Jesus is not kind of the miracle worker in her view at this point. I think, and again, I'm just kind of putting the pieces together. I think the reason she comes to Jesus is because the way she lived her life was always coming to Jesus. When we get to the the story of Jesus over these next two, three years worth of material, there's no reference to Joseph. Mary and Joseph from the Christmas story are now Mary. There's no Joseph. It seems that he's probably died in the interim, and now she's an older woman, she's on her own, and she would be looked after by her children, especially her oldest son. 
And so the son of the carpenter, who had become the carpenter, became the one that Mary looked to and leaned on. I would imagine that Jesus was very resourceful. He was a carpenter. He's capable of, of handling a lot of things uh, and always selfless and always kind and always generous. And I suspect Mary is just assuming he will figure it out. He's the most resourceful person she knows. And so Jesus, they run out of wine. But then Jesus' response to Mary is, for us, a little bit startling, isn't it? Woman. Woman. It sounds a little bit harsh. I don't think he barked it. I was trying to think of how to explain that term, because it's not a normal term to use for your mother. I don't recommend it. But Jesus says, woman, instead of mother, mummy, mama, uh, none of those words, no, you know, no Mary, no whatever. Uh, it's just woman. It's not harsh. It's not rude. It's not, um, it's not offensive, I suppose the closest is uh, in, in a similar culture to ours, though completely different. In America, you have people that in certain parts of the States will refer to a woman with respect by saying ma'am, right? Sort of madam without the D in the middle. Madam has other issues, so we won't use that. But sort of the, the ma'am uh, type phrase. It's kind of like, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. It's a, it's a polite, deferential, uh, respectful term. But the one thing that's definitely there is a little bit of distance. Okay, it's not, uh, it's not the sort of thing you typically say to your mother in this culture where Jesus is. And so when he's saying, woman, what has this got to do with me? He is putting a distance between her and him. He's separating the two of them. It's not that he's being rude. He's not sinning. He's not tearing her down. But Jesus is starting into his mission. He's starting into the reason that he came to this earth. And Mary is not in charge of that. Mary's not the one that gets to call the shots. She's not the one that gets to tell him what to do now. As we'll find as we go on through John's gospel, everything the son does is in response to the father. God the father is the one that gets to direct Jesus. It's God's mission, not Mary's. And so Mary's sensitive. She brings the situation. Jesus distances himself from her. And he does that multiple times in the gospels, just making it clear, don't treat Mary like she's in charge. She doesn't get to call the shots with Jesus. And then he does the miracle. Now, she wasn't expecting it. I don't think anyone would be expecting it. But Jesus does the miracle, and there's these six stone water jars there. Large jars. They're not ceramic. They're stone. So they're a certain kind of jar. We're told the size of them. And you, you know how it goes. Very simple. Go fill them up, and then draw the water. And as they draw the water from the jars, they've now got wine. That's about 500 bottles of wine. All right, that's not like a couple of bottles. That's 500 bottles of wine. And it turns out the best wine, like the impressive wine, not the cheap stuff, right? This isn't like Tesco value wine. This probably isn't even like wine warehouse wine. This is, whoa, that's impressive wine wine, right? Because when they take the wine to the head waiter, the guy in charge of making sure that this party's working and going smoothly, he takes a sip of it and he's blown away. And he turns to the bridegroom. I think this is really interesting. He turns to the bridegroom and gives him all the credit. Just imagine the look on the bridegroom's face. What's he talking about? I didn't know we had any extra wine. Did you know we had extra wine? <laughs> You're welcome. 
And, and that's kind of where the story ends. And so Jesus does this miracle, and then the bridegroom gets the credit, and then everyone's happy. 500 bottles of wine happy. It's a, this is a real party, right? This is a significant and a serious celebration. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus began his ministry at a wedding. In fact, it's not just the story that matters here, because in verse 11, it says to us that the glory is what matters. This was the first sign by which Jesus manifested his glory. He revealed something of who he was. If you've read John before, you'll know that John loves uh, to be very choosy in what he writes. He, he carefully selects and writes the story of Jesus' life and, and structures it around sets of seven things. He, he just seemed to be obsessed with the number seven. And so, uh, not randomly, it's not like he chose it on the lottery or something. It was the, the number of completion. It was a real kind of a special number for the Jews. And so, so John has seven signs in the end of the book, he says, if I was going to write every miracle that Jesus did and all the special things that Jesus did, it would be overwhelming, but I've written these that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's the life changer, and John has said, okay, I'm going to carefully pick seven signs, miracles that point to who Jesus is. And this is the first one. It's the first of seven signs revealing, manifesting his glory. Notice a couple of things. In fact, maybe four things about this sign. Notice that uh, you see it there in verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Four quick observations. Number one, notice how quiet it is. Jesus doesn't do a big, flashy, showy miracle. You'd expect a kind of, you know, a big explosion of action. I mean, right before that, the verse right before, you've got the head waiter giving the credit to somebody who has got no idea what's going on, sat there with a sort of uh, wedding photo grin on his face, right? And Jesus sits quietly. Jesus doesn't say, <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't him, it was this guy. He doesn't do that. He lets someone else get the credit. I love that about Jesus. There's something very gentlemanly. There's something very tender and, and, and sort of not pushy about Jesus. He's not in it for the show. He's not in it to impress people. He's willing to do what is needed for the sake of this wedding, and he's willing to do it with no praise, with no attention, with nobody knowing. He doesn't sort of close in prayer and just thank God that he was able to provide the wine. He doesn't do any of those little subtle things that we tend to do to get attention in our direction when we feel we are due the attention that we've missed. Jesus doesn't do that. Completely quiet, completely subtle. And I think that says something about the character of Jesus. That says something about the glory of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. Not only that, not only is it quiet, but also it's gracious and it's sensitive. Here's a, a, a couple that have given everything for this great day. The husband, the husband's parents, all the families, all the, all the time and preparation. And if this goes wrong, they will bear the shame of it forever. And Jesus is sensitive to that. 
Don't you love that? That he, he doesn't just go, well, there's something bigger going on, and it's me. I'm the Messiah. Get out of the way, wedding. He doesn't do that. He honors these people in a very loving, very gracious way. And maybe days later, who knows, at some point in the future, maybe they'll be having a bit of a chat. And, and, and one of the people who drew the water will say, you know what? Do you, do you know where that wine actually came from? And maybe in, in the conversation later on, it will come out that it was him. But Jesus doesn't worry about that. He wants them to have the wedding that they dreamed of. He wants them to enjoy the party with no shame. It's gracious and it's sensitive and it's tender and it's loving, as well as being quiet. Notice as well that the whole thing happens at a wedding. I don't think that's an accident. For Jesus to come and and launch his ministry at a wedding is so perfect because actually, if we were to go through the Bible from cover to cover, you know what we would find? We'd find that weddings are the biggest deal. God loves weddings. Weddings are the plan all the way through. God's design from the very beginning is to rescue sinful, gross, undeserving people and to pull them out and to bring them to a wedding with his son. The story of the Bible is the story of God's great wedding. And he's preparing it all the way through. And all the way through the Old Testament, there are these prophecies, these predictions, these anticipations where God says, call me my husband. And and there's going to be this wedding and there's going to be abundance and there's going to be feasting and there's going to be wine. And God describes that all the way through. And Jesus now steps onto the scene and very quietly, but very deliberately does it at a wedding. He, gives the, he lets the bridegroom take the credit, but the truth is Jesus is the better bridegroom. Jesus is the one that provides the wine in abundance. Jesus is the one that makes the ultimate wedding possible. And in a couple of weeks' time, in chapter 3, we're going to have John the Baptist back on the scene again. And guess what he's going to call Jesus? He's going to call him the bridegroom. The bridegroom. And because the bridegroom has got the bride, then John the Baptist, who is effectively going to be the best man, but I don't want to give it all away, he's going to say, my joy is complete because of the bridegroom. And so this is no accident that Jesus does this miracle at a wedding. It's quiet. It's gracious. It's at a wedding. And the fourth thing I want us to notice about the glory that's being manifested here is the deliberate comment about the water jars. All it needs to say, really, is um, there were some water jars, and they held this much water. But it goes on, doesn't it, in verse 6, to tell us that they were for the Jewish rites of purification. And so there's that extra detail there, and I think it's deliberate, because what's happening here is, is Jesus is coming in, he's revealing who he is, he's revealing his plan, and in doing so, he is kind of critiquing the old system. The old system, the Judaism, the Jewishness of their day, their religion, had, a, had these water jars for purification. And purification was a huge deal to the Jews. You'd want to wash your hands before you eat. You want to make sure that if you've touched something that you shouldn't have, like a dead body or whatever, that you'd be purified so that you wouldn't be unclean. It was a huge thing for the Jews. And yet purification only goes so far, doesn't it? All purification can do is remove dirt. It can remove uncleanness. But it doesn't add anything. 
And, and often for the Jews, what their religion had become was a system of, of kind of continuous cleansing to get rid of or to cover over sin. But there was no life being added from that. Remember what John the Baptist said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the ultimate purification. And Jesus is the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who gives you the life of God. And so here in this story, we've got a little bit of a critique of the water jars, if you like. that The purification is fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Only with Jesus can we get the fullness of the wedding wine, the feasting, the celebration, all the abundance. Again, if we were to read through our Old Testaments, we could put our finger on places time and again where the expectation is that in the future... God is going to make things right. And in the future, God is going to take care of all of our needs. And in the future, there's going to be not just a nice meal. There's going to be a feast and it's going to be abundant. And there's going to be so much wine. It's going to be like pouring down the hills, Amos chapter 9 and other places. There's just this huge anticipation that one day there would be abundant wine when God's kingdom comes. And here's Jesus at a wedding quietly providing 500 bottles of the best. You see, Jesus has come not just to be part of the system. He's come to revolutionize it. Jesus hasn't come just to help us in our self-help efforts for living life. He's come to revolutionize. And the revolution that he brings isn't some kind of stiff and starchy, pickled and sour version of Christianity that you always see on the TV. He's come to offer us joy and feasting and celebration. God loves parties. Doesn't love all parties, though. And right after this story, there's another party that Jesus comes to. This time, not so quiet. This time, he's going to disrupt it. He's going to mess it up because it's a disgraceful party. It's a party based in the temple in Jerusalem. And again, Jesus is going to do what he's done already. He's going to reveal something of who he is. He's going to critique the old system. He's going to show that it's inadequate, that there's something more, that religion is not the solution. And this time he's going to speak not about uh, the first sign, but about the ultimate sign to prove who he is for us. So let's look at our Bibles from chapter 2, verse 13. And we'll read this second party. And this section is really going to answer for us the question of, okay, if Jesus is offering that ultimate wedding feast, if he's offering us that ultimate joy that can only be found in being in relationship with God and being part of the party that he's creating, how do we get there? How do we get to be a part of that? Is it simply coming to church on a Sunday? And the answer to that is a most definite no. Coming to church can very easily become just a ritual, can't it? Just something we do. We dress a certain way and act a certain way. And before we know it, church can become more religion than reality. And that's the way it was in Jerusalem. The temple was the place where God's presence was supposed to be dwelling in the midst of his people. It was supposed to be a worship center. It was supposed to be a place where people were blown away by the graciousness of God. And instead it had been corrupted. They turned it into a bazaar. They were making more, giving more focus to making money than they were to worshiping God. And so let's read what happens. 2 verse 13. 
the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Very different scene now, isn't it? Before, Jesus was up north in Cana in Galilee, quietly providing an abundant celebration at a wedding, not taking any credit, not drawing any attention. Now he's down in Jerusalem, and the temple courts are this bizarre, they're just crazy wild with all the action of what's going on, and it's like God has been completely lost in the mix. And Jesus is so consumed with anger. So moved by what he sees there, such a disgrace for this to be happening. He loves his father so much that it's not right that his father's house should be treated this way. And so Jesus deals with it. Let's not fall into the trap of thinking Jesus is nice. He's incredibly good. He's incredibly gracious. He's wonderful. He's gloriously kind. But he's not just nice. Sometimes we... We, we sort of fall into the trap of thinking that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, sort of applies to everything about Jesus. Like he wouldn't ever stand up and be strong where necessary, but he absolutely would. And on this occasion, you just imagine, I mean, it's hard to, to kind of picture this, I suppose, in a way. We always think of Jesus in a robe, sort of walking around healing people. But Jesus was a carpenter. Carpenters didn't make little ornaments. They made door lintels and house frames. They dealt with big wood, so he would have had strong arms, okay? So for him, picking up a piece of wood and holding it in place and, and hammering it in, that kind of changes your physique a little bit. And so now imagine those strong carpenter arms pulling together a whip of cords and tying it up and making it ready and then going in and just driving out all the people. This is not subtle. This is absolutely strong, but it's absolutely right. And he goes in and he turns over the tables and the coins are going everywhere and the people are kind of going crazy and you think, what in the world's going on? And he's driving people out because that is not what this is about. Religion is not supposed to be this self-serving thing where we go through the rituals and we get what we want. It's supposed to be about looking to God and seeing the kind of God that he is, responding to him in worship. And so Jesus drives all these people out of the temple, and understandably, the religious leaders step in. They're not going to let this go. In fact, it was the high priest's father-in-law, I think I'm getting this right, it was the high priest's father-in-law who was like the mafia boss of this bazaar. 
It was called Annas's Bazaar. And so he was the one that was raking in the cash. And so you can imagine Annas in his room somewhere hearing about it and sending a little text message or whatever they did. And soon enough, the religious leadership were coming down on Jesus like a ton of bricks. You can't do this. What authority do you have to do this? And the way they ask it is what sign do you show us? What's the proof that you can do what you are doing? And although this is now just a few verses after verse 11, where verse 11 said this was the first sign by which Jesus manifested his glory, this now is a reference to a sign that turns out to be number seven. If we were to go through it, we'd see that there are signs two, three, four, five, and six, uh, stretching between chapter four, what is it, four, five, uh, six, nine, eleven, I think it is, and then this one. Because this doesn't happen at this point. What is it that Jesus says for a sign? He says, okay, look, you want to know what sign I'm going to show you to prove my authority, to essentially turn over the whole of your religion? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they take that literally when he means it in a different way than they take it, but that's okay. That's going to happen a lot in the next couple of chapters where Jesus says one thing and people take it a different way. They took it to mean the building. Now, the building had been a building project of Herod the Great since about 20 BC. So when they say it's 46 years, they're bang on. 46 years brings us right to the point where we think this was in Jesus' life and experience. And so they say, look, 46 years, this is a huge building project. In fact, they hadn't finished it. It kept going right the way through to about 63. So there's another 35 years worth of work to be done on this project. But to this point, they say, 46 years, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? And then John tells us that Jesus wasn't talking about that. He was talking about his own body. The ultimate sign, the ultimate proof that Jesus has the right to say, you know what, the old system doesn't work. Your human system does not work. The ultimate proof that Jesus has to come into our lives and to challenge and rebuke everything that we stand for, it's not that he turned water into wine. That was gracious. It's that ultimately when he died on the cross, on the third day he rose back to life. And that's a sign. That's a reality that we have to deal with. We have to face that. We may not even accept the Bible is true. We may be kind of looking at it going, this is interesting, some kind of religious book. But ultimately, we have to come to the fact that Jesus died on that cross, was buried, and on the third day, he physically got up and walked out of the tomb. There's no Jesus bones to be found. There's no body of Jesus lying somewhere, hidden away by some body thieves. Because you can't find someone who's not there. He's not dead. He's alive. And for the past 2,000 years, people have been confronted with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And some of them have been incredibly skeptical. Ah, that doesn't happen. Resurrection, that's nonsense. That's the stuff of fairy tales. And when they've looked into it and researched and chased the evidence, not just in the Bible, but including the Bible. They chase the evidence, and what they find time and time and time again is that Jesus did rise from the dead. And if Jesus can rise from the dead, then it's not hard to imagine that he could turn water into wine. 
If Jesus could rise from the dead, it's not hard to imagine that he has something to say about our religious efforts. And so it doesn't really matter what we are. It doesn't matter if we call ourselves Christian or, or this denomination or that denomination or agnostic or atheist. None of that matters to Jesus, really, because ultimately it matters. But it, it matters in the sense that he can say, none of that counts. What counts is me because I rose from the dead and you've got to deal with me. And so he's manifesting his glory to us, the gracious, tender, sensitive generosity of Jesus at that wedding, which actually finds its fulfillment in its ultimate form when Jesus is hanging naked, humiliated, beaten, bleeding on a cross. Why would he do that? Why would he go through that when he had done nothing wrong? John's gospel is going to tell us that it was God's plan all along. That it was the Father's plan for Jesus to die on that cross and in dying to draw all people to himself, to draw them out of their religions, if necessary, out even of their denominations, to draw them out of their self-effort, of their self-religiosity, of their self-righteousness, of their self-focus and their self-concern, and to draw people to him. That's what the Bible says presents to us. When it presents us with Jesus, it's presenting us with the ultimate challenge to our own self-defined worlds. And yeah, it's great that he did the water into wine miracle. That's, the more you think about it, the more exciting that gets. But ultimately, we have to deal with the fact that Jesus died and he rose. And that's the ultimate sign, the ultimate proof of who he is. And so here we are today with a gathering. I mean, this party would be a bit of a stretch, but, but it's a gathering and we're here and we're enjoying being together. But I wonder what is our response to Jesus? Because that's the real issue. Just as Jesus stepped into that wedding and quietly manifested his glory, just as Jesus stepped into that temple and ruined and really destroyed the party that was going on, demanding, effectively demanding that the people take him at his word. They didn't trust him in the temple. They didn't believe what he said, but the disciples were taking it in and they were processing. At the wedding, the disciples started to believe based on what they saw. Mary had implicit trust in his word. Jesus steps into our party And he invites us to trust him, to take him at his word when he says, I've come to give you life to the full. It's there for the the taking. It's there for us. The question is, do we go, okay, I'm in. Whatever it takes, Jesus, I'm with you. Do we respond to him and trust him that in the end, the wedding feast, that everyone who is his, that 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 wedding feast will be the ultimate joyful experience that will end all experiences of joy. We'll go, this is the most amazing thing ever. If that's what's coming, are we in? Or do we want to hold Jesus back? Do we want to push him out to arm's length and say, I'm not sure? Jesus in his gentle niceness, his graciousness, Jesus in his aggressive, strong, bold rebuke of the leaders, Jesus in all the versions, if you like, all the moments that we catch a glimpse of, Jesus jumps off the page at us. And it's like he pokes us in the chest lovingly, but he pokes us in the chest and he says, okay, what about you? How do you respond? I rose from the dead. I provided wine at a feast. 
Are you prepared to trust my word and, and have my life? Are you prepared to be part of my bride? To be part of that wedding where I will be the groom and you will be the bride and we will be together forever in the family of God. That's what the gospel gives to us. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, please, would you bolt me on to your weekly schedule? He says, I want to turn the whole thing upside down. I want to revolutionize your life. Will you trust me?